Well, good morning. Very good to see everybody this morning, um, especially Miss Grace. It is so good to see you. Uh, what just an incredible joy and an unexpected, just wonderful joy it is to get to see you uh, here this morning. Um, and with uh, being here, um, we're talking about the purpose of assembling this morning. Um, we've been doing a series of lessons now for a little over a month on just understanding the nature of Christ's church and the Bible. And this is the last lesson in the series. Um, in the first lesson, we talked about just defining the word church and really coming to some conclusions just really based on how that word is used and defined in the Bible. Um, you remember we talked about how the church or the word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which of itself is not even a religious word. In Acts chapter 19, we looked at how uh, the word ekklesia was used to describe a riotous crowd, uh, a council to pass judgment lawfully. Um, and so it's not necessarily inherently a religious word, and it really depends on the context to define the, the nature of the group that is being described or talked about. And so we talked about how church is ultimately just a group of individuals. And so just to review a couple things, the universal church, when we're talking about the worldwide church, whether it be different cultures or times, when we're dealing with the universal church, like in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus said he would build his church, we're talking about individuals who are united with Jesus in fellowship. When we're dealing with a local church, so like the Corinthians, the Romans, the Galatians, Ephesians, we're dealing with individuals who are willfully involving themselves in fellowship of both common identity, which is this orange circle that I've chosen to illustrate this with, and this common work, which is this uh, just yellow colored blob in the middle of the individuals here. But we've reviewed multiple times now that if we're to kind of try to picture this a little bit, you can see that there's no room for things like denominations in God's plan and his design and his description of both individuals and congregations. Um, that church, by definition, is not a group of groups. It's not a group of institutions. Just by definition, church is a group of individuals, right? And so when we looked at this contextually, we saw, for instance, Sardis is a group that's described in Revelation chapter 3, that even though this church in majority was described as being dead, there were still individuals within the church that Jesus said were walking worthy and walking and would walk with him in white. We looked at how in Corinth, uh, just pictured as three people, where obviously there would be more than three people in the church of Corinth, but just for means of illustration, um, the Corinthian church was tolerating in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Somebody was in their group. He was a part of their identity, a part of their work, and it was somebody that was living in sin uh, unrepentantly. And Paul admonished them that they needed to disassociate themselves from this sinning brother. And so they had made a mistake in their judgment, which local churches can do. Um, so you also have the dead in Christ who are still in fellowship with Jesus, despite not being able to be in physical fellowship with anybody anymore. And you have on the right side of the board there, people who because of circumstances outside of their control Although they desired fellowship, were unable to have that local fellowship, even though they still maintained their universal individual fellowship with Jesus. But we're going to be looking more specifically at the purpose of assembling. So a couple lessons ago, we looked at the purpose of the universal church, and that is individuals in the world, and we talked about how individuals are called 
to be lights in the world, to work as priests in the world, to bring God to people and people to God. We then, uh, last week, we looked at the purpose for a local church. And that's the relationships that we just generally have together, even outside of the assembly. And now this week, what we're dealing with is specifically the assembling of the local church. Um, So I want to start with a question, is assembling the extent of the work and purpose of a local church? And that should be somewhat uh, redundant since last week we looked at uh, the greater context of a purpose of a local church. But there's a common error that can happen very easily that I've seen happen uh, frequently. What can happen is a local church can look at assembling as the goal, the end goal of their relationships. Um, Or if a church even has an eldership, that the elders really just oversee the assembly of the church and not individuals within but also without the assembly. And so what can be a common error is the assembly is elevated as the end goal of the work of a local church. And what we're going to see is that the assembly is not the end goal, but it equips us for that end goal. And again, we'll, we'll see that this morning. But why is it important to study these things and to have clarity on these things? You know, why is it important that we've studied, for instance, the purpose of the universal church and the purpose of a local church and now the purpose of assembling? I just want to illustrate this before we move on in the lesson on the importance of maintaining a clear sense of purpose. You think about the Old Testament and God redeeming Israel out of Egypt, out of their slavery in Egypt. When God brought Israel out of their Egyptian bondage and he made them their own nation, did God have a purpose for doing those things? Did he have a purpose for the nation after their exodus? And it doesn't take long reading through the scripture to see that God had an incredibly important purpose for the nation of Israel. He had a purpose for the nation as a whole. He had a purpose for the priesthood within that nation. He had a purpose for individuals within that nation. But the history of Israel, the history of God's relationship with his people, is a history of God remembering and fulfilling his purpose with his people. But while God remembers, his people continuously forget. We really don't see the purpose of Israel fully realized until Jesus came into the world. And we'll have maybe glimpses sometimes of Israel's purpose in individuals, like think about Joshua who went into Canaan to conquer the land. You think about somebody like King David who fulfilled God's purpose in his generation. Think about last year when we were studying about Elijah and Elisha and how those individuals, the nation, They remembered God's purpose, not only for themselves, but for the nation. You remember, uh, even before that, we studied about Ezra, Nehemiah, who again, they they remembered God's purpose that he had for, for them and for the nation around them. But these individuals stand in contrast to the more common story of people forgetting the purpose that God had for them, that God had designated, and the responsibilities that he had designated. And it's not just an Old Testament problem. When you read the New Testament scriptures, you read of churches like the Corinthians who are struggling with forgetting their purpose and their responsibility as a church, forgetting their identity in Christ. You read about the Galatians who, again, had fallen from grace, who had forgotten uh, the importance of faith and the importance of their identity in Christ through faith. And it's not even just a New Testament problem in the scriptures. 
Um, you may have seen this, uh, but I've seen that congregations that even sometimes start faithful end up drifting from God's purpose over time. And how does that happen and why does that happen? Fundamentally, it's forgetting the purpose that God has for us. It's failing to understand the priority that God places on his relationship with us, the nature of his character and love, and learning based on that character, based on that love, and based on his teaching, fulfilling the responsibility that we have as, as his people. So with assembling specifically, there are really not very many scriptures that deal explicitly and directly about the assembly, but here is what... Um, I think is uh, the, either the, the full list or just the majority. Um, if you could think of some others, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear about the, the scriptures that I may have missed. But Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, and 1 Timothy 5, we'll look at some of these. Um, it's dealt with exercising discipline or that disassociating from sinning brethren that we already referenced in 1 Corinthians 5. In Acts, we have multiple instances where you see in the historical context of uh, the teaching of the gospel, churches coming together for equipping and unifying. We'll look at 1 Corinthians 11 with partaking the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 14 from the scripture reading, we'll look at that in a moment with the nature of an assembly. Hebrews chapter 10 talks more about some principles that give us purpose for assembling. And then James chapter 2, verse 2, just warning against partiality in the assembly. That's where he talks about a rich man coming in, getting the good seat, while a poor man comes in and is sitting at someone's footstool. So we'll just kind of use these scriptures and try to summarize in three main points. How do we understand the purpose of the assembling of a local church together? And the first point from 1 Corinthians 14, if you want to turn in your Bibles there again, is for education and edification. And I think this is one of the main purposes of the assembly that we see in the book of Acts. We see this in the epistles. And it's, it's also implied just by nature of the fact that these epistles would have been read and they continue to be read at the assembling of churches. So the first main point of a local church's assembling is being educated and edified. Um, but obviously that education is not just people giving their own personal thoughts without basis from God's word. What we're talking about is learning and affirming God's will from his word. And this is what we saw in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 23 through 40. And so I'll read this uh, context again um, here, and I'll start in verse 23, um, if you'll follow along there. 1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and the ungifted men, or in the ungifted man, uh, or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever, an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. 
The spirits of, of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So just a few principles that I think we can uh, gain from 1 Corinthians 14. Um, One, when it's talking about speaking in tongues and prophesying, I think it's helpful uh, to have some clarity on on what's being talked about there. Usually we think about prophecy as like predicting future events, right? Uh, But in the context of 1 Corinthians 14, to prophesy is not to necessarily speak of future events, but simply to give God's message by direct inspiration in a miraculous way. And speaking in tongues would have been a similar gift, a uh, similar miraculous gift. Speaking in tongues, in, again, in the context of what we see in 1 Corinthians, but also in the book of Acts, it wasn't just speaking um, things that were at random. Uh, it would have been a language that could have been interpreted and translated for the listener, right? And both of those things, they were based in communicating God's will in a time when those gifts were needed to fill in a gap when the New Testament scriptures were not yet fully revealed or completed. Um, but again, you can see through the context that the, the focus is on learning and affirming God's will. We see that in verse 26, highlighted, that each one has a psalm, which would have been communicating, obviously, a psalm from God's word, has a teaching, which may involve explanation of God's word, a revelation, which would have been like a, pro- like a prophecy, speaking something by direct inspiration, has a tongue, so speaking the message of God in a different language, has an interpretation, and this would be the person who would have the gift of hearing what is being said by somebody speaking in a tongue and then interpreting what was being said so that all could understand and then all would be edified. So with verse 26 as well, All of this is being done with purpose to equip for spiritual development. If you look back at chapter 14, verse 3, he says, But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. That word consolation uh, is just a word that means comfort. And notice he's saying you're speaking for this purpose. Paul said earlier in 1 Corinthians, Knowledge puffs up but love edifies. The theme of chapter 14 is edification. The idea of building up somebody's relationship with God. So why do we gather together? Why do we study God's word? And and why is God's word a focal point of what we're doing in an assembly? It is because God's word uniquely equips us for spiritual development. For some, they may, they may need just general edification. They may, they may need to be built up. Some may need to be exhorted. And the idea of exhortation is to be strongly told what ought to be done, like a call to action. Some may come to an assembly because they're feeling very down. Uh, maybe the world has torn down their motivation. 
They may by circumstance simply need great comfort from their brethren or from God's word. And assembling together is those who see their need for these things, to be built up, to have a call to action, to be re-motivated and renewed, but also to receive comfort. Oftentimes, consolation particularly, I think what I've experienced and what I've heard from others is oftentimes it's least motivating to come to an assembly when you most need consolation. But did you know that coming to an assembly is one of the most important ways that we receive consolation, both from one another and from God? So again, we're speaking with the purpose to equip, not just knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but we're striving to be trained by God's word for righteous living and godly purposes. Also notice the emphasis on order and self-control and submission. Um, This is going to kind of leak into this next point, that this isn't about the exaltation of people. Um, We used to have, kind of as an illustration of this, we used to have an assembly once a month on Sunday afternoons that we called like the 1 Corinthians 14 assembly. Um, If you look at verse 27, those who would speak in tongues, notice there's a limit. He says, okay, two or at most three, and then they do this in turn. So not just people speaking chaotically or at random, but one person speaking at a time, and once you reach three, then that's it. And then if you look at verse 29, it's the same with the prophets. So somebody, again, standing up, and they've got a message by direct inspiration. Notice the similar principle here. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. Notice in verse 30, seems implied that if you've reached the limit of the number that Paul gives here, he says, okay, so let's say another person receives a revelation. You know, so somebody has inspiration to say something. He says, well, if you've reached the limit of the people that should speak, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. And so have self-control. Stay seated and stay silent. This isn't about everybody getting to just chaotically do whatever they want, but there is an order, there is a discipline, and there is self-control involved in this. And so assemblies encourage this mutual submission that we are like sheep wanting to learn and, and wanting to not exalt people, but exalt the shepherd, that we are just tools being used in different ways to exalt God and to exalt his will. Um... I think one of the interesting things about the pattern you have for this assembly in 1 Corinthians 14 is it specifically aids this idea of the need of mutual submission without the individual being exalted unduly. A lot of times you can have assemblies that are really centered around one main person, right? So you have maybe a few things going on, but really the the main event, if you will, is one person that serves as, you could even say, the personality of the church where they're, where they're teaching. But that's not meant to be the purpose of assembling. It's not meant to exalt a person, not to exalt a person's abilities, but that each person doing their part to mutually edify others and for us to see past the teacher and to see the one who is giving the message, God himself ultimately in exalting him. So again, there's order, there's self-control, and there's submission. You have verse 34 through 36, where he says, women are to keep silent in the churches, and uh, by implication at the assemblies like this. I think you can see in verse 36 through 38, 
Paul recognizes that even at the time of this writing, that this kind of submissive mentality was in a sense countercultural and controversial, right? So again, it's just the idea that everybody here is yielding to the role that God places them in, even those who had a revelation earlier in verse 30, but when the limit is made of two or three, even that person must quietly stay silent and submit. So each person is trying to practice mutual submission in assembly, which encourages, again, mutual edification and education. And then finally, listeners are not to be passive, but are to actively pass judgments, which I just mean coming to a motivating conclusion off of what's being taught or what's being said, and also ensuring sound doctrine is being taught. So look at verse 29. Um, It's the verse that I'm, I'm drawing that principle from. So he says, let two or three prophets speak, but let others pass judgment. So did you know in an assembly there are not meant to be any passive listeners? That although you're listening to what's being taught, that God calls you to be coming to very active conclusions on what you're hearing. And to analyze what you're hearing, is is what you're hearing sound doctrine? Does this really fit with what God calls us to be doing and learning, right? So in Acts 20, verse 27, you may remember when Paul called the elders at Ephesus together, he had told them that he did not shrink back from declaring to them the whole counsel of God, right? So that's really what we're looking for, is is we're looking for the whole counsel of God to be taught. That there's no subject that's off limits, there's nothing too uncomfortable to bring up or too controversial to openly talk about. But we want everything that God teaches to be openly taught, openly thought about, and we want to come to conclusions and learn to come to conclusions on every subject or everything that we can. And that means like we've studied uh, just recently books like Zechariah. How do we take a book like Zechariah and draw conclusions that edify us from a book like Zechariah? Um, passages like dealing with the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 15 and the resurrection, all of these different subjects that God puts forward. What we, what we have as our goal is we want to learn to be able to learn each thing that God has set aside for us Uh, to draw conclusions from. So again, at this assembly, you have multiple different people and they are all speaking for the purpose of edifying by teaching God's word actively at an assembly. The next point is unification and humiliation. Um, And I've used that word humiliation very deliberately. I know that kind of sounds maybe strange, the way that that word is usually used, but By Merriam-Webster's, what I mean is humiliation as in to cause a painful loss of pride, or dictionary.com defines it as reducing someone to a lower position in one's eyes or other's eyes. We already saw this in 1 Corinthians 14, so if you are still there, if you look at verse 24 and 25, you have, just by chance it says, an unbeliever may come into the place where the church is assembled, and when this person is there, If the word is being taught, what may happen and what hopefully happens is he's convicted by all, he's called into account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed, so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What we see there is this person who has entered in and heard God's word has experienced a painful loss of pride at the hearing of God's word. Or he's been reduced into a lower position in his own eyes because of hearing God's word. And this is one of the purposes of coming together is not, again, that we're trying to exalt one another unduly, 
but that we are trying to humble ourselves and even embracing the convictions that come from hearing God's word and being exhorted by it. So if you turn to chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians, we also see this in eating the Lord's Supper and the practice of eating the Lord's Supper. Um, In 1 Corinthians 11, if you start in verse 17 through uh, 19, he says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. There must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evidence among you. Um, So if you look at verse 18, Paul is giving this instruction that relates to the church coming together. Uh, In the New American Standard, it's translated, when you come together as a church. So in verse 21 through 26, we have outlined uh, Paul re-delivering the original institution of the Lord's Supper, where Jesus in the night he was betrayed took unleavened bread and gave it to his disciples to remember his body that was broken. He gives them fruit of the vine to remember the new covenant in his blood. And then in verse 27 through 32, so note this again that there is a purpose that is meant to unify and humble in the instruction that's given that relates to the assembly. And as I I read this, just think about what this conveys about the purpose of coming together and just the attitude that's being conveyed here. Verse 27 through 32. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. If he does not judge the body rightly, for this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So remember, at an assembly, nobody is intended to just be a passive participant, right? What you don't see in God's word, that going to meet with the church in an assembly, we don't see that like going to a show or going to a movie, right, or going to watch a play. We're not just going to witness what's been prepared by others. We are going to participate in what also belongs to us. So in verse 28, You notice that in partaking of the Lord's Supper, this is a congregational practice. So he first emphasizes that this is to happen when a church chooses to come together. And within this congregational practice, there is an individual examination. And it's not just an individual examination. In verse 29, he says, If this person eats and drinks judgment to himself, it's because he's not judging the body rightly. So it could mean judging the body as in the body of Jesus. Or it could mean judging the body as in all of us in mutual need. Our eating of the Lord's Supper to remember that we are mutually bought by the suffering of Jesus' body and the shedding of his blood. That everybody within the body has equal value, equal need. And so we're both lowered in our eyes but we have an assessment of the body in a way that motivates us, again, not to exalt people unduly, but to serve the needs of others and to remember that we are together for a blood-bought purpose. So we're to come together to take the Lord's Supper, not just as a practice, 
not just to eat a little unleavened bread and to drink a tiny sip of grape juice, but that those things are symbols to help us to get into a frame of mind, to remember the gravity of why we are who we are and why we're together. So similarly, um, we're called to come together as well, even to deal with sinning brethren. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 3 through 5. So interestingly, Jesus spoke of disassociating from sinning brethren at an assembly, but Jesus didn't really speak of many other things that would be done at an assembly. On 1 Corinthians 11, Paul references that uh, what he was doing with his, uh, what he was doing with the Passover meal would be continued in the new covenant. Um, But in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus references what Paul here fulfills in writing to the Corinthians. So notice 1 Corinthians 5, verses 3 through 5. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. And he's dealing with, in verse 1, the brother who is openly involved in sexual immorality. Verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus, note this, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the Lord Jesus. What happens a lot of times, um, if we let God's word train us, not just with the knowledge of what's said here apart from us, but to think as they were being trained to think, reading these epistles can be very challenging. Because there's things that are openly addressed that are very uncomfortable to think about and deal with. And so Paul exhorted the church not just to quietly, behind the scenes, you know, deal with this, but this is so embarrassing. We don't want anybody to know that this is going on. Now he says, openly, verse 4, even specifically when you are assembled. Well, What about chapter 14, where the unbeliever may enter? Don't you think he might be put off by seeing you address these things at an assembly? No. Because a purpose for assembling, like 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, when Paul urges Timothy that if even an elder of a church continues in sin, the entire church is to be told of such a matter that they may fear sinning in similar ways. Again, the reason this is challenging is we don't want of ourselves to experience the kind of humility, even humiliation, that God's word confronts us with. But what we see in God's word is everything is laid open and bare. And this leads us to the final principle in this. What we see consistently with assemblies is we see local issues being very personally and uncomfortably addressed. And this is like a mystery of God's word. Um, Another error that I've seen very commonly that we have to be very careful with. Again, we can read God's word and we we can talk about God's word in a way where it nearly becomes fruitless because we're simply looking at the things that are there without training ourselves to think as they were being trained to think. And what I mean is you can end up like a church in Revelation where seven churches were addressed and of those seven, five were near having their candlestick removed completely, being disassociated from Christ without seemingly being aware of the condition they were in. 
And what God is trying to help us to see is we need to be very self-aware in understanding and taking stock of what is the condition of the church where we are. What are the specific needs here? Or even what are things going on here that could, if they continue, if they persist, lead to greater issues as time goes on? Look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Then we'll come back to 1 Corinthians. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Acts chapter 6, and I'll just read verses 1 through 6. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The whole congregation, or the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, uh, Proconus, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. So look at verse 2. They summoned the congregation together, and they dealt with this issue. You know, I think when you think about what could possibly be some of the most sensitive issues that the church could have been confronted with here, um, dealing with an issue that seems to stem from racism and then from the neglect of the needy and elderly, it's hard to imagine that there could be a more sensitive issue that they could have tackled or dealt with, right? But again, what we see is they didn't try to sweep this under the rug. They didn't try to ignore the problem or let it fester. They summoned the church together. They equipped the church, the apostles equipped the church to deal with the task. They assigned people to the task. And in verse 7, the word of God then thrived in the city where they were and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. Um, so just this, this one verse, I think, serves as a pattern, not just for 1 Corinthians, but for the rest of the epistles onward. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 11. So Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. And then in verse 12, he gets even more specific. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ, etc., Again, one of the uncomfortable realities of every epistle. These were all written to churches that had struggles, problems. And sometimes those problems had progressed so far that they needed to be dealt with harshly and boldly. You remember we studied Galatians not that long ago. Cody led our study in Galatians, and he hammered into our minds that one of the very unique things about Galatians is it doesn't start with encouragement. It begins immediately with a rebuke that he is shocked that they had departed so quickly from the Lord. So you have Corinthians dealing very personally with the issues that the church was facing at the time it was written. You have Galatians. You have Ephesians encouraging the church in the condition they were in. We have Philippians dealing with some very direct things. You remember uh, there were a couple women in Philippians chapter 4 that Paul urges to be in harmony. 
In Colossians, he says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, the worship of angels, and the severe treatment of the body. Do you remember with Philemon? Paul writes a letter to Philemon dealing with Onesimus and uh, the returning slave that he wanted to be received as a brother when he would return. Hebrews, where Hebrews writes very specifically about the needs of the Christians being written to, how they had lost motivation and even needed to be admonished and rebuked for the condition they were in. The point is, every New Testament epistle, every single one, addresses the issues and the needs of the churches that were written to in very personal ways. Scripture that I don't have on the board, uh, just on this point, turn to Colossians chapter 4. Uh, verse 16 and 17. And just to kind of point out again how these, these letters that had very personal information that could be considered like dirty laundry in a sense, they were meant to be circulated, obviously even outside the context of just that local church receiving the epistle. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, 16 and 17. Colossians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. So, verse 16. What about some of the personal things that are said to the Colossians? You know, things about, again, in chapter 2, they were being told to stop letting people defraud them of their prize by teaching false doctrine. You know, don't you think they maybe want to keep that private and keep that admonition private? He says, no, you need to let this letter be read among the church of the Laodiceans. And whatever is in that letter that was written to Laodicea needed to be read among the Christians in Colossae as well. And then in verse 17, you even have this very personal admonition. Just imagine for a moment, Archippus has been sitting, listening to this epistle being read. And you imagine if Archippus had been somebody who had lost his zeal to serve God, And then all of a sudden you hear your name being mentioned at the conclusion of the letter. Say to this man, you take heed to your ministry. You fulfill it. Again, the principle is we can't just rehearse information fruitlessly. We need to have the wisdom, we need to have the courage, the prudence to address the needs of the church wherever we are. We need to be striving to teach the whole counsel of God, even when it's controversial or uncomfortable. We need to be willing to talk about the needs of the church here, even when it would be more convenient to sweep those things under the rug or not speak of them at all. God challenges us in these epistles to be more honest-hearted, to be more open, and to be more bold. And again, that's not just on an individual level, that is even on a congregational level. So one of the purposes of assembling is for unification and humiliation. Finally, with all of these things, um, I think a way to kind of conclude this is the purpose of the assembly is to stimulate and provoke. And I've defined these words again. So Hebrews chapter 10 is where we're going to go and where I get these, these words from. Uh, some translations will use different words in this exhortation, in verse 24 specifically. Um, 
So we'll, we'll read 19 through 25, and then I'll define these words as they're on the board here. Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 25. So we'll read this, define some of these words, and then we'll talk more about the scripture after that. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a, a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the, co- the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So verse 24, let us consider consider how to, some translations will say provoke one another. Some may say how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Uh, The New American Standard says how to stimulate one another. I think the NIV says to spur one another. And the idea is stimulating would be to excite toward activity or growth or even to greater activity, meaning whatever I'm doing, maybe I can do it more fervently with more wisdom. Or to spur, meaning to incite to action or accelerate growth or development. I think that word spur, it's helpful to think about uh, how maybe we could think about that in in just even um, when people wear spurs. Um, A lot of times you might have seen in like cowboy movies or just old westerns, people wearing boots that they sound really cool, they look really cool, they have those spurs on the back that clank while they walk. And what you'll see is they'll get on their horse and then they'll whack their horse a little bit and it'll just take off running. And the idea is they're spurring their horse by either nudging it with the spur that is sharp on the back of their heel or even by hitting it aggressively to incite it to move, right? And again, that's what we've seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. That's what we've seen in the passages that we just looked at in the last point, that assembling together is meant to cause us to feel incited and motivated to take action. And that's what we see in Hebrews chapter 10 is the principles that are under, undergirding our purpose and the priority of that purpose and assembling together. So just something to note, just really quickly in verse 22, notice that first, we draw near to who? So universally, first, we recognize what God has done to bring us close to Christ. And we draw near to God in response to this. And then in verse 24 through 25, in drawing near to God, we also draw near to one another. And in placing priority on our relationships and and how to build those relationships, we also prioritize assembling together. And so God gives us purpose for why we meet together. I think there's an important way to think about this. Oftentimes, for me, it's easy to think about assemblies as something that I'm only receiving from, right? Um, So a lot of times I can think, well, I hope that the song leader chooses the songs that I like to sing, or I hope he does a good job leading songs. Or I hope that, you know, if if I'm not preaching, it can be easy for me to think, I hope the preacher really teaches a very engaging lesson. I hope he's able to keep my attention really well as I listen. Or I hope they can keep their lesson in a nice, tight time frame so my attention isn't exasperated, right? I think maturity involves a shift there. 
But it's not bad to see that, you know, there is something we are striving to gain from being together. Obviously there is an importance on what we gain from assembling together. We gain consolation, edification, and exhortation. But in verse 24 and 25, the shift that maturity brings is I also want to learn to assemble because of noticing the needs of others. That when I sing and participate in singing, my goal is to encourage others in my participation. That I want to take stock of where the congregation is as best as I can so that I can, in verse 25, encourage others more and more in my relationship with them. And so again, maturity causes the shift of not just what I can gain, but what I can cause others to gain by my presence among his people as well. And then finally, 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, and we'll end the lesson here. 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. What is the goal uh, in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5? So Hebrews chapter 10 says we're trying to stimulate one another to love and good works. We're trying to give each other consideration to figure out how can we help motivate each other to grow in our relationship with God. And in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, he says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of the teaching is love. Have you ever had a day where you were really struggling, or maybe like you came and you assembled with the church, but something was really weighing on your conscience? And then when you were sitting, listening to the lesson, or singing the songs, or participating with the prayers, that thing that was weighing on your conscience was only getting louder and louder until you couldn't avoid it. That's why we assemble. We assemble to help each other to get a clean and pure conscience, to grow in the sincerity of our faith. And as we are refined, as we're purified, as we come together with resolve to grow in our love, what God does is he exposes things within us that can be renovated by truth, by love, and by his light. So that's where we'll end the lesson uh, for this, this morning. Um, if you're here this morning and you haven't put on Christ, if you haven't chosen to obey the gospel and be entered into the kingdom of God, you're being invited into something so much greater than what appearance may convey. I've said this a few times lately, but by just looking at the church here, you see people who are broken, who are imperfect, who are struggling in weakness to apply the things that God has called us to. You know, hearing a sermon from God's word, I'm not going to present things as maybe a great motivational speaker in the world who's very well practiced will present things. But it's not about us. In being redeemed, it's not just that you're being added to God's kingdom among his people. It's that you're being added to Christ himself in eternal glory. Our hope is that we are working and struggling towards that goal of the resurrection. And that these people who are assembled here this morning, no matter what appearance may seem, these are those that we are striving to realize the unlimited glory of the joys in heaven. And so if there's anything we can do for you to, uh, if you desire to obey the gospel this morning or to bring any need forward, uh, we would encourage you to do that while we stand inside.